Does anyone want to go back on, or we? Did we do it? Did we? Looks like microphone's still live. <clears throat> All right. This is advice to grown-ups. Take children's advice because there's always a time, and it's always in the horror movies when the the adults always die because they don't listen to the children. So listen to your children, people. Thank you. If you're not eating a donut right now, go get a donut. If you don't have a donut, maybe you're in your car, just go to a donut shop. You have to eat a donut right now. Okay, all that's all. down so got awful low. Everyone keeps talking about the bias. I'm just going to give it again for the one millionth time. <sighs> I have one advice, and all it is is rip yourself when you reach the age of 12 years old. Um, I... Uh, me, again, Nate. Um, anyways, okay, uh, so, don't smoke. Anyway, so, that, that little, okay, anyone out there who likes smoking, don't. It, yes, it's stupid. Okay, anyway, so, it's bad for your lungs, and... And okay, good luck. Hi, it's me again. The kid that didn't like cheese. Um, <laughs> the worst thing that could ever happen to society: cheese-filled donuts. Oh, and get a wife. Well, you heard it here. Set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign. 
by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio Studio and Gallery Performance Space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mind. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. It's nap time. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. Comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog-friendly. Dog-friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. A dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. (laughs) Dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 278 121st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here in Dot SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. 
Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we gonna do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That That's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine, and even in the drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking. L-S-D. Fap. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 Acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. Up in the head, Mutiny Radio Festival, ahoy! Ah, very good! Ah, very good, Legless Joe! I'm surprised you can see from the crow's nest with no legs! It's to get ready! Crew, the festival is upon us! Scurvy Steve, how many comics? Over a hundred comics! You're looking good, Scurvy Steve! Glad the scurvy hasn't taken you! Captain. You! No liver Mary! How many venues? We've got nine venues, sir! And you boy, what's your name? Very good! And finally, Eleven Fingers Sally! What about the tickets? You can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir! Check out www.mutinyradio.fm What is that? I don't know what a website is! I'm a pirate! <laughs> <laughs> But f- f- quick to the festival! All oh, sails ahead! Uh, Pirate uh, noises! Uh, 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 
That's Let's Watch a Full Length Movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman, as seen on Game Show Network's People Puzzler. Mike, I'm kind of Roger Ebert because I don't shut up about movies. I talk constantly about Did you love them? I, I love, love the bad movies. That's where Roger and I differ. And I have a bad movie podcast with my friend Carl, and we watch the entire movie in real time uh, like, on YouTube. Like Surf 2 from the 1980s. Oh, and then you guys talk about that. Yes. I love that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yes, well, welcome. Welcome, Mike. Yeah, it's great to have you guys here. Mike Spiegelman, as seen on Game Show Network's People Puzzler, and Carl. Hi, Carl. Hey, Mike, how are you, television star? Great to see you again uh, in the lowly medium of FM radio and, and YouTube. But, you know, for a TV star like you... ...be up there, and here's your clue. Michael Jackson turns into one in Thriller. Zombie. Is it Zombie. Where do you want to go next? Uh, four down. Four down. We have an M and an E, and here's your clue. Heavy genre of Twisted Sisters, we're not going to take it. Metal, heavy metal. Is it metal? All right. All right, doing good, Mike. But uh, great to see yes. you again. Thank you for having me on our show. Well, thank you for arriving to our show. As, a, as always, uh, we are recording... The seconds after my episode just aired, where I was a game show contestant on Very Game Show Network's People Puzzler, and I couldn't really talk about it, but it's out there, and you'll hear clips from it throughout our podcast. We are streaming right now on MutinyRadio.fm, as we do every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 5 p.m. New Jersey Time, and we are really excited because we have a great show. Carl and I... We watch movies on YouTube, the full-length movies that are posted on YouTube. We want you to watch the YouTube movie with us and uh, listen to our podcast at the same time. So you can do this right now, streaming live, Uni Radio, go to YouTube, or you can subscribe to our podcast. It'll drop every Sunday night, 
and then you can watch the movie at your leisure or you can subscribe <laughs> to our YouTube channel which Carl has already synced up the movie. Carl is the producer of the show. Yes, he yes, wrote the theme yes. song you heard up front. Right. Uh, yeah, he will edit game show bits for yes. the show until the end of infinity. And uh, till the end of infinity. Not even till infinity. <laughs> Coming right up. Mike, right. what is the movie today? You're asking me, Carl, what a switcheroo. Normally, I would ask you. Today's movie is Thunderbirds Argo. The theatrically released 1966 super animate. So we're not listening to LMF and OIT right now. We're going to listen to some other stuff. We've got AltaCast maybe happening today. Not exactly sure. But we will play some interesting religious stuff. The history of God, which is what I've been playing here because I'm interested in God, I guess. God, please help us at Mutiny Radio. Uh, we might be having the Sheriff of Truth come in, which would be amazing. And I would love that. We have the Phoenix Day coming up. We also have the Excelsior Day coming up. We're going to be passing out flyers and doing all of that. But until then, listen to the History of God, Part 3. Falsifer had been inspired by the encounter with Greek science and metaphysics, but was not slavishly dependent upon Hellenism. In their Middle Eastern colonies, the Greeks had tended to follow a standard curriculum in their education, and this had led to a degree of unity and coherence. However, the Phalasuks did not observe this curriculum, but read the texts as they became available in Arabic. This inevitably opened up new perspectives. Besides their own distinctively Islamic and Arab insights, their thinking was also affected by Persian, Indian, and Gnostic influence. Thus, Yaqub ibn Ishaq al-Kindi, who died in about 870, was the first Muslim to apply the rational method to the Quran. He disagreed with Aristotle on several major issues. He could see philosophy only as the handmaid of revelation. Most later philosophers would not share this perspective. Al-Kindi was also anxious to seek out truth in other religious traditions, however. Truth was one, and it was the task of the philosophers to search for it in whatever cultural or linguistic garments it had assumed. Here, Al-Kindi was in line with the Quran, but he went further since he also turned to the Greek philosophers. He used Aristotle's arguments for the existence of a prime mover. In a rational world, he argued, everything had a cause. There must, therefore, be an unmoved mover to start the ball rolling, as it were. This first principle was being itself, unchangeable, perfect, and indestructible. But Al-Kindi departed from Aristotle by adhering to the Quranic doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Action can be defined as the bringing of something out of nothing. This, Al-Kindi maintained, was God's prerogative. Falsifer came to reject creation ex nihilo, so Al-Kindi cannot really be described as a true philosopher. But he was a pioneer in the Islamic attempt to harmonize religious truth with systematic metaphysics. His successors were more radical. 
Thus, Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria Arazi, who died in about 930, has been described as the greatest nonconformist in Muslim history. He saw the creation as the work of a demiurge, a subordinate deity. Matter could not have proceeded from a holy spiritual god. He also rejected the Aristotelian solution of a prime mover, as well as the Quranic doctrines of revelation and prophecy. Only reason and philosophy could save us. Most philosophers did not take their rationalism to such an extreme. One of the reasons that Falsafa remained a minority sect in Islam was its elitism. It necessarily only appealed to those with a certain IQ, and was thus against the egalitarian spirit that was beginning to characterize Muslim society. The Turkish philosopher Abu Nasser al-Farabi, who died in 980, dealt with the problem of the uneducated masses. He can be regarded as the founder of authentic falsafa and showed the attractive universality of this Muslim ideal. In The Republic, Plato had argued that a good society must be led by a philosopher who ruled according to natural principles, which he was able to put across to the ordinary people. Al-Farabi maintained that the Prophet Muhammad had been exactly the kind of ruler that Plato had envisaged. Al-Farabi saw revelation as a wholly natural process. The god of the Greek philosophers, who was remote from human concerns, could not possibly talk to human beings and interfere in mundane events as the traditional doctrine of revelation implied. Al-Farabi did not believe that God had suddenly decided to create the world. That would have involved the eternal and static God in unseemly change. Like the Greeks, Al-Farabi saw the chain of being proceeding eternally from the One in ten successive emanations, which he referred to as intellect. Al-Farabi's doctrine of emanation became generally accepted by the philosophers. Mystics also found the notion of emanation more sympathetic than the doctrine of the creation ex nihilo, as we shall see. Muslim Sufis and Jewish Kabbalists often found that the insights of the philosophers were an inspiration to their more imaginative mode of religion. This was particularly evident in the Shia, the party of Ali. Although they remained a minority form of Islam, the 10th century is known as the Shi'i century, since Shi'is managed to establish themselves in leading political posts throughout the empire. Shi'is revered the direct descendants of Ali, whom they regarded as the true leaders or imams of the Muslim Ummah. The veneration of the imams was no mere political enthusiasm, however. Shi'is had come to believe that their imams embodied God's presence on earth in some mysterious way. They had evolved an esoteric piety of their own, which depended upon a symbolic reading of the Quran. It was held by them that Muhammad had imparted a secret knowledge to his cousin and son-in-law, Ali ibn Abi Talib, and that this had been passed down the line of designated imams who were his direct descendants. Shi'is saw their imams as temples or treasuries of the divine, brimful of that enlightening divine knowledge. The Ismailis, a Shi'i sect, feared that the philosophers were concentrating too much on the external and rationalistic elements of religion, 
and were neglecting its spiritual kernel. But they had also developed their own philosophy and science, which were regarded as spiritual disciplines to enable them to perceive the inner meaning of the Quran. Contemplating the abstractions of science and mathematics purified their minds of sensual imagery and freed them from the limitations of their workaday consciousness. Instead of using science to gain an accurate and literal understanding of external reality, as we do, the Ismailis used it to develop their imaginations. They turned to the old Zoroastrian myths of Iran, used them with some Neoplatonic ideas, and evolved a new perception of salvation history. It will be recalled that in more traditional societies, people believed that their experience here below repeated events that had taken place in the celestial world. The same was true of more abstract spiritual realities. Every prayer or virtuous deed that we perform here and now was duplicated in the celestial world, which gave it eternal significance. These heavenly archetypes were felt to be true in the same way as the events and forms that inhabit our imagination often seem more real and significant to us than our mundane existence. It can be seen as an attempt to explain our conviction that our lives have meaning and importance. In the 10th century, the Ismailis revived this ancient mythology, which had been abandoned by Persian Muslims when they converted to Islam, but which was still part of their cultural inheritance, and they fused it imaginatively with the Platonic doctrine of emanation. Al-Farabi had envisaged ten emanations between God and the material world. Now the Ismailis made the Prophet and the Imams the souls of this celestial scheme. This image of the apotheosized imams reflected the Ismaili interpretation of the true meaning of Shi'i history. This had not just been a succession of external mundane events, many of them tragic. The lives of these illustrious imams here on earth had corresponded to events in the archetypal order. The Ismaili Batinis, who sought the hidden or Batin dimension of religion, used symbolism which they felt revealed a deeper reality than could be perceived by the senses or expressed in rational concepts. Accordingly, they developed a method of reading the Quran which they called Tawil, literally carrying back. They felt that this method would carry them back to the original archetypal Quran. It was a discipline that enabled Muslims to understand God as he deserved to be understood. Abu Yaqub al-Sijistani, a leading Ismaili thinker who died in 971, explained. Muslims often spoke about God anthropomorphically, making him a larger-than-life man, while others, like the Falasufs, reduced God to a concept. Instead, al-Sijistani advocated the use of the double negative. We should begin by talking about God in negatives, saying, for example, that he was non-being rather than being, not ignorant rather than wise, and so forth. But we should immediately negate that rather lifeless and abstract negation, saying that God is not not ignorant, or that he is not nothing in the way that we normally use the word. By a repeated use of this linguistic discipline, the Batini would become aware of the inadequacy of language 
when it tried to convey the mystery of God. Ismaili writers frequently spoke of their batim in terms of illumination and transformation. Tawil was not designed to provide information about God, but to create a sense of wonder that enlightened the Batini at a level deeper than the rational. Nor was it escapism. The Ismailis were political activists. Indeed, Jafar ibn Sadiq, the sixth imam, had defined faith as action. Like the Prophet and the imams, the believer had to make his vision of God effective in the mundane world. These ideals were also shared by the Ikhwan al-Safa, the Brethren of Purity, an esoteric society that arose in Basra during the Shi'i century. The Brethren were probably an offshoot of Ismailism. Like the Ismailis, they dedicated themselves to the pursuit of science as well as to political action. Like the Ismailis, the Brethren were searching for the Batin, the hidden meaning of life. Their epistles, which became an encyclopedia of the philosophical sciences, were extremely popular and spread as far west as Spain. Again, the Brethren combined science and mysticism. Mathematics was seen as a prelude to philosophy and psychology. A deep understanding of the self became the kingpin of Islamic mysticism. The Sufis, the Sunni mystics with whom the Ismailis felt great affinity, had an axiom, he who knows himself knows his Lord. This was quoted in the first epistle of the brethren. As they contemplated the numbers that they allotted to the soul, they were led back to the primal one, the principle of the human self in the heart of the psyche. The brethren were also very close to the Felasufs. Like the Muslim rationalists, they emphasized the unity of truth, which must be sought everywhere. Falsafa reached its apogee in the work of Abu Ali ibn Sina, who died in 1037 and who was known in the West as Abyssena. Ibn Sina believed that if Falsafa was to live up to its claims of presenting a complete picture of reality, it must make more sense of the religious belief of ordinary people, which was a major fact of political, social and personal life. Instead of seeing revealed religion as an inferior version of falsafa, Ibn Sina held that a prophet like Muhammad was superior to any philosopher because he enjoyed a direct and intuitive knowledge of God. This did not mean, however, that the intellect could make no sense of God. Ibn Sina worked out a rational demonstration of the existence of God based on Aristotle's proofs, his proofs which became standard among later medieval philosophers in both Judaism and Islam. Ibn Sina didn't develop his proofs to convince himself of the existence of God. Neither he nor the Felasufs had the slightest doubt that God existed. They never doubted that unaided human reason could arrive at a knowledge of the existence of a supreme being. Ibn Sina saw it as a religious duty for those who had the intellectual ability to discover God for themselves in this way to do so, because reason could refine the conception of God and free it of superstition and anthropomorphism. Ibn Sina and his successors, therefore, were not developing these proofs to argue with atheists, since in the ninth century there were no atheists in our sense of the word. 
They wanted to use reason to discover as much as they could about the nature of God. Ibn Sina's proof begins with a consideration of the way our minds work. Wherever we look in the world, we see composite beings that consist of a number of different elements. When we try to understand something, we analyse it, breaking it up into its component parts. The simple elements seem primary to us, and the composite beings that they form seem secondary. We are continually looking for simplicity, therefore, for beings that are irreducibly themselves. It was an axiom of falsifer that reality forms a logically coherent whole. That meant that our endless quest for simplicity must reflect things on a larger scale. Like all Platonists, Ibn Sina felt that the multiplicity we see all around us must be dependent upon a primal unity. The philosophers and the Quran were in agreement that God was simplicity itself. He was one. It follows, therefore, that he cannot be analysed. Because this being is absolutely simple, it has no cause, no qualities, no temporal dimension, and there is absolutely nothing that we can say about it. God cannot be the object of discursive thought, because our brains cannot deal with him in the way that they deal with everything else. Because God is essentially unique, he cannot be compared to any of the things that exist in the normal, contingent sense. Consequently, when we talk about God, it's better to use negatives to distinguish him absolutely from everything else that we talk about. But since God is the source of all things, we can postulate certain things about him. Because we know that goodness exists, God must be essential or necessary goodness. Because we know that life, power and knowledge exist, God must be alive, powerful and intelligent in the most essential and complete manner. Yet Ibn Sina was not content with this abstract account of God's nature. He wanted to relate it to the religious experience of believers, Sufis and Batinis. Interested in religious philosophy, he used Al-Farabi's scheme of emanation to explain the experience of prophecy. The last and lowest of the intelligences or emanations in our own sphere, the tenth, is the Holy Spirit of Revelation, known as Gabriel, the source of light and knowledge. By receiving the Qur'an from Gabriel, the Prophet Muhammad had perfected this direct union with the divine world. This psychological interpretation of vision and revelation would enable the more philosophically inclined Sufis to discuss their own religious experience. Indeed, at the end of his life, Ibn Sina seems to have become a mystic himself. The disciplines of Kalam and Falsafa had inspired a similar intellectual movement among the Jews of the Islamic Empire. They began to write their own philosophy in Arabic, introducing a metaphysical and speculative element into Judaism for the first time. Unlike the Muslim philosophers, the Jewish philosophers concentrated almost entirely on religious matters. They felt that they had to answer the challenge of Islam on its own terms, and that involved squaring the personalistic God of the Bible with the God of the philosophers. Like the Muslims, they worried about the anthropomorphic portrait of God in the scriptures and the Talmud, and asked themselves 
how he could be the same as the god of the philosophers. They worried about the problem of the creation of the world and about the relation between revelation and reason. They naturally came to different conclusions, but they were deeply dependent upon the Muslim thinkers. Thus, Sadia ibn Joseph, who died in 942, was the first to undertake a philosophical interpretation of Judaism. He was a Talmudist, but he also believed that reason could attain a knowledge of God by means of its own powers. Like a philosopher, he saw the attainment of a rational conception of God as a mitzvah, a religious duty. Yet Sadia had no doubts whatever about the existence of God. A Jew was not required to strain his reason to accept the truths of revelation without proof, Sadia argued. But that did not mean that God was entirely accessible to human reason. Sadia acknowledged that the idea of the creation ex nihilo was fraught with philosophical difficulties and impossible to explain in rational terms, because the god of falsifer is not capable of initiating change. How could a material world have its origin in a holy spiritual god? Here we had reached the limits of reason and must simply accept that the world was not eternal, as Platonists believed, but had a beginning in time. This was the only possible explanation that agreed with scripture and common sense. Once we've accepted this, Sadia said, we can deduce other facts about God. The created order is intelligently planned. It has life and energy. Therefore God, who created it, must also have wisdom, life and power. These attributes are mere aspects of God. It is only because our human language cannot adequately express the reality of God that we have to analyse him in this way. If we want to be as exact about God as possible, we can only properly say that he exists. Sadia does not forbid all positive description of God, however, nor does he put the remote and impersonal God of the philosophers above the personal, anthropomorphic God of the Bible. When, for example, he tries to explain the suffering that we see in the world, Sadia resorts to the solutions of the wisdom writers and the Talmud. Suffering, he says, is a punishment for sin. It purifies and disciplines us in order to make us humble. This would not have satisfied a true philosopher because it makes God far too human. But Sadia does not see the revealed God of Scripture as inferior to the God of Falsifer. The prophets were superior to any philosopher. Ultimately, reason could only attempt to demonstrate systematically what the Bible had taught. Other Jews went further. In his Fountain of Life, the 11th century Neoplatonist Solomon ibn Gabirol could not accept the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, but tried to adapt the theory of emanation to allow God some degree of spontaneity and free will. He claimed that God had willed or desired the process of emanation, thereby attempting to make it less mechanical and to indicate that God was in control of the laws of existence. Others were less innovative. Bahia ibn Pakuda, who died in 1080, was not a strict Platonist, but retreated to the methods of Kalam whenever it suited him. Thus, like Sadia, he argued that God had created the world at a particular moment. The world had certainly not come into being by accident. 
The order and purposiveness of the world shows that there must be a creator, as scripture had revealed. Having thus put forward this highly unphilosophical doctrine, Bayer then switched from Kalam to Falsifer, listing Ibn Sina's proof that a necessary, simple being had to exist. Bayer believed that the only people who worshipped God properly were prophets and philosophers. The prophet had a direct, intuitive knowledge of God, the philosopher a rational knowledge of him. Everybody else was simply worshipping a projection of himself, a god made in his own image. Bayer was as elitist as any philosoph, but he also had strong Sufi leanings. Reason could tell us that God existed, but could not tell us anything about him. But if reason could not tell us anything about God, what was the point of rational discussion of theological matters? This question agonized the Muslim thinker Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, a crucial and emblematic figure in the history of religious philosophy. Writing in the late 11th century, in his treatise The Incoherence of the Philosophers, al-Ghazali argued that the philosophers were begging the question. If falsifer confined itself to mundane, observable phenomena, it could tell us nothing about God. How could anybody prove the doctrine of emanation one way or the other? By what authority did the philosophers assert that God knew only general, universal things rather than particulars? Could they prove this? Their argument that God was too exalted to know what happened on earth was inadequate, since when was ignorance about anything excellent? There was no way any of these propositions could be satisfactorily verified, so the philosophers had been irrational and unphilosophical by seeking knowledge that lay beyond the capacity of the mind. But where did that leave the honest seeker after truth? Was a sound, unshakable faith in God impossible? The strain of his quest caused al-Ghazali such personal distress that he had a breakdown. Fearing that he was in danger of hellfire, al-Ghazali resigned his prestigious academic post in Baghdad and went off to join the Sufis. There he found what he was looking for. Without abandoning his reason, al-Ghazali discovered that the mystical disciplines yielded a direct but intuitive sense of God. Since wujud, the Arabic word for existence, literally means that which is findable, an Arabic-speaking philosopher who attempted to prove that God existed did not have to produce God as another object or reality. He simply had to prove that God could be found. After living for ten years as a Sufi, al-Ghazali found that the religious experience was the only way of verifying a reality that lay beyond the reach of the human intellect. The Sufi's knowledge of God was not rational or metaphysical knowledge, but it was clearly akin to the intuitive experience of the prophets of old. Sufis thus found the essential truths of Islam for themselves by reliving its central experience. Al-Ghazali, therefore, formulated a mystical creed that would be acceptable to the Muslim establishment. Like Ibn Sina, he looked back to the ancient belief in an archetypal realm beyond this mundane world of sensory experience. The Quran and the Bible had both spoken of this spiritual world. 
Man straddled both realms of reality. He belonged to the physical as well as to the higher world of the spirit because God had inscribed the divine image within him. Our reason is also enlightening. Like God himself, it can transcend time and space. It partakes of the same reality as the spiritual world, therefore. But in order to make it clear that by reason he did not merely refer to our cerebral, analytic powers, Al-Ghazali reminds his readers that his explanation cannot be understood in a literal sense. We can only discuss these matters in the figurative language that is the preserve of the creative imagination. Some people possess a power that is higher than reason, however, which Al-Ghazali calls the prophetic spirit. People who lack this faculty shouldn't deny that it exists simply because they have no experience of it. That would be as absurd as if somebody who was tone-deaf claimed that music was an illusion. We can learn something about God by means of our reasoning and imaginative powers, but the highest type of knowledge can be attained only by people like the prophets or the mystics who have this special God-enabling faculty. Instead of being an external, objectified being whose existence can be proved rationally, God is an all-enveloping reality and the ultimate existence, which cannot be perceived as we perceive the beings that depend upon it. We have to cultivate a special mode of seeing. Al-Ghazali eventually returned to his teaching duties in Baghdad, but he never lost his conviction that it was impossible to demonstrate the existence of God by logic and rational proof. For those who were not blessed with the special mystical or prophetic talent, Al-Ghazali devised a discipline to enable Muslims to cultivate a consciousness of God's reality. He made an indelible impression on Islam. Never again would Muslims make the facile assumption that God was a being like any other, whose existence could be demonstrated scientifically or philosophically. Henceforth, Muslim philosophy would become inseparable from spirituality and a more mystical discussion of God. Al-Ghazali also had an effect on Judaism. The Spanish philosopher Joseph ibn Sadiq, who died in 1143, used Ibn Sina's proof of the existence of God, but was careful to make the point that God was not simply another being, one of the things that exist in our usual sense of the word. The Toledan physician, Judah Halevi, who died in 1141, followed al-Ghazali closely. God could not be proved rationally, but that did not mean that faith in God was irrational, but simply that a logical demonstration of his existence had no religious value. Falsifer was not entirely dead as a result of al-Ghazali's polemic, however. In Cordoba, in Spain, a distinguished Muslim philosopher attempted to revive it and to argue that it was the highest form of religion. Abu al-Walid ibn Ahmad ibn Rushd, who taught and wrote in the 12th century and was known in Europe as Averroes, became an authority in the West among both Jews and Christians. In the Islamic world, however, Ibn Rushd was a more marginal figure. In his career and his posthumous effect, we can see a parting of the ways between East and West in their approach to and conception of God. Ibn Rushd passionately disapproved of al-Ghazali's condemnation of falsifa. 
he was convinced that there was no contradiction whatsoever between religion and rationalism. Both expressed the same truth in different ways. Both looked toward the same God. Not everybody was capable of philosophical thought, however, so falsifer was only for an intellectual elite. Ibn Rushd believed that the acceptance of certain truths was essential to salvation, a novel view in the Islamic world. Even the philosophs had to subscribe to the creed of obligatory doctrines, which Ibn Rushd listed as follows. One, the existence of God as creator and sustainer of the world. Two, the unity of God. Three, the attributes of knowledge, power, will, hearing, seeing and speech, which are given to God throughout the Quran. Fourth, the uniqueness and incomparability of God. Fifth, the creation of the world by God. Sixth, the validity of prophecy. Seventh, the justice of God. And eighth, the resurrection of the body on the last day. These doctrines about God must be accepted in toto, as the Quran is quite unambiguous about them. Ibn Rushd's great disciple in the Jewish world was the great Talmudist and philosopher Rabbi Moses Ibn Maimon, who died in 1204 and who is usually known as Maimonides. Like Ibn Rushd, Maimonides was a native of Cordova, the capital of Muslim Spain, where there was a growing consensus that some kind of philosophy was essential for a deeper understanding of God. Unlike Ibn Rushd, however, he did believe that the ordinary people could be taught to interpret the scriptures symbolically. He also believed that certain doctrines were necessary for salvation, and published a creed of 13 articles that was remarkably similar to Ibn Rushd. Thus we have the existence of God, the unity of God, the incorporeality of God, the eternity of God, the prohibition of idolatry, and the validity of prophecy. Moses was the greatest of the prophets, the divine origin of truth, the eternal validity of the Torah. God knows the deeds of men. He judges them accordingly. He will send a Messiah, and finally, the resurrection of the dead. This was an innovation in Judaism and never became entirely accepted. As in Islam, the notion of orthodoxy or obligatory beliefs was alien to the Jewish religious experience. The creeds of Ibn Rushd and Maimonides suggest that a rationalistic and intellectualist approach to religion leads to dogmatism and to an identification of faith with correct belief. Yet Maimonides was careful to maintain that God was essentially inaccessible to human reason. He proved God's existence by means of the arguments of Aristotle and Ibn Sina, but insisted that God remains ineffable and indescribable because of his absolute simplicity. We cannot even say that God is good because he is far more than anything that we can mean by goodness. This is a way of preventing us from projecting our hopes and desires onto him. That would create a God in our own image and likeness. When it came to a choice between the God of the Bible and the God of the philosophers, Maimonides always chose the God of the Bible. Even though the doctrine of the creation ex nihilo was unorthodox philosophically, 
Maimonides adhered to the traditional biblical doctrine and jettisoned the philosophic idea of emanation. As he pointed out, neither could be proven definitively by reason alone. Despite Maimonides' emphasis on rationality, he maintained that the highest knowledge of God derived more from the imagination than from the intellect alone. His ideas spread among the Jews of southern France and Spain, so that by the beginning of the 14th century, there was what amounted to a Jewish philosophical enlightenment in the area. Some of these Jewish philosophs were more vigorously rationalistic than Maimonides himself. Thus, Levi ben Gershon, who died in 1344 of Bagnol in southern France, denied that God had knowledge of mundane affairs. His was the God of the philosophers, not the God of the Bible. Inevitably, a reaction set in. Some Jews turned to mysticism and developed the esoteric discipline of Kabbalah. Others recoiled from philosophy when tragedy struck, finding that the remote god of Falsifer was unable to console them. During the 13th and 14th centuries, they needed consolation. The Christian wars of reconquest began to push back the frontiers of Islam in Spain and brought the anti-Semitism of Western Europe to the peninsula. Eventually, this would culminate in the destruction of Spanish Jewry. And during the 16th century, the Jews turned away from Falsifer and developed an entirely new conception of God that was inspired by mythology rather than scientific logic. The crusading religion of Western Christendom had separated it from the other monotheistic traditions. The First Crusade of 1096 to 1099 had been the first cooperative act of the New West, a sign that Europe was beginning to recover from the Dark Ages and the fall of Rome. The new Rome, backed by the Christian nations of Northern Europe, was fighting its way back onto the international scene. But the Christianity of the Angles, the Saxons and the Franks was rudimentary. They were aggressive and martial people and they wanted an aggressive religion. During the 11th century, the Benedictine monks of the Abbey of Cluny and its affiliated houses had tried to tether their martial spirit to the church and teach them true Christian values by means of such devotional practices as the pilgrimage. The first crusaders had seen their expedition to the Near East as a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but they still had a very primitive conception of God and religion. Soldier saints like St. George figured more than God in their piety and, in practice, differed little from pagan deities. Jesus was seen as the feudal lord of the Crusaders rather than as the incarnate Logos. He had summoned his knights to recover his patrimony, the Holy Land, from the infidel. During the long, terrible march to Jerusalem, when the Crusaders only narrowly escaped extinction, they could only account for their survival by assuming that they must be God's chosen people who enjoyed his special protection. When they finally conquered Jerusalem in 1099, they fell on the Jewish and Muslim inhabitants of the city and massacred them with a brutality that shocked even their own contemporaries. Thenceforth, Christians in Europe regarded Jews and Muslims as the enemies of God. For a long time, they also felt a deep antagonism toward the Greek Orthodox Christians of Byzantium, 
who made them feel barbarous and inferior. This had not always been the case. During the 9th century, some of the more educated Christians of the West had been inspired by Greek theology. Thus, the Celtic philosopher, Duns Scotus Origina, who died in 877, had translated many of the Greek fathers of the Church into Latin for the benefit of Western Christians, in particular the works of Denis the Areopagite. Erigena passionately believed that faith and reason were not mutually exclusive. Like the Jewish and Muslim philosophers, he saw philosophy as the royal road to God. Yet, instead of saying that God's existence can be proved, Erigena believed, like Dennis, that our word existence was too limiting for the reality that, for the sake of convenience, we call God. God was not another being. It was more accurate to call God nothing and to say that he does not exist in any sense that we can understand. In Origina's paradoxical theology, God is both everything and nothing. The two terms balance one another out and are held in a creative tension to suggest the mystery that our word God can only symbolize. Origina showed that the Latins had much to learn from the Greeks. But in 1054, Eastern and Western churches broke off relations in a schism which has turned out to be permanent. Behind the political conflict between the two churches, there was a deeper division, since both were developing radically different ideas of God. The Greeks had always distrusted Augustine's Trinitarian theology because it was too anthropomorphic. Where the West began with the notion of God's unity, and then considered the three persons within that unity, the Greeks had always declared that God's unity, his single ousia, was beyond our ken. They thought that the Latins made the Trinity too comprehensible. The Trinity had never been as central to Western spirituality as it has remained for the Greeks. The Greeks felt that by emphasizing the unity of God, the West was identifying God himself with a simple essence, that could be defined and discussed, like the God of the philosophers. We shall see that Western Christians were frequently uneasy about the doctrine of the Trinity, and that during the 18th century Enlightenment, many would drop it altogether. To all intents and purposes, many Western Christians are not really Trinitarians. They complain that the doctrine of three persons in one God is incomprehensible, not realizing that for the Greeks, that was the whole point. After the schism, Greeks and Latins took divergent paths. In Greek orthodoxy, theologia, the study of God, remained precisely that. It was confined to the contemplation of God in the essentially mystical doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. The West, however, was increasingly concerned to form a correct opinion that was binding on everybody. The Reformation, for example, divided Christendom into yet more warring camps because Catholics and Protestants could not agree on the mechanics of how salvation happened and exactly what the Eucharist was. In 1082, the Greek philosopher and humanist John Italos was tried for heresy because of his excessive use of philosophy and his Neoplatonic conception of creation, which was alien to the Greek Orthodox Church. It is therefore poignant and ironic that Western Christians, 
should have begun to get down to Falsafa at the precise moment when Greeks and Muslims were starting to lose faith in it. Aristotle had not been available in Latin during the Dark Ages, so inevitably the West had been left behind. The discovery of philosophy in the 12th century was stimulating and exciting for them. The 11th century theologian Anselm of Canterbury seemed to think that it was possible to prove anything at all. His God was not nothing, but the highest being of all. Even the believer could form an idea of a supreme being, which was one nature, highest of all the things that are, alone sufficient unto itself in eternal beatitude. Yet he also insisted that God could only be known in faith. In his famous prayer, Anselm reflected on the words of Isaiah, unless you have faith, you will not understand. The oft-quoted maxim, credo ut intelligam, is not an intellectual abdication, however. Anselm's assertion should really be translated, I commit myself in order that I may understand. At this time, the word credo meant an attitude of trust and loyalty, not an intellectual assent to a set of religious opinions. It is important to note that even in the first flush of Western rationalism, the religious experience of God remained primary, coming before discussion or logical understanding. Nevertheless, Anselm believed that the existence of God could be argued rationally, and he devised his own proof, which is usually called the ontological argument. Anselm defined God as something than which nothing greater can be thought. Since this implied that God could be an object of thought, the implication was that he could be conceived and comprehended by the human mind. Anselm argued that this something must exist. Since existence is more perfect or complete than non-existence, the perfect being that we imagine must have existence, or it would be imperfect. Anselm's proof was ingenious and effective in a world dominated by Platonic thought. It's unlikely to convince a skeptic today. Anselm's God was being, therefore, not the nothing described by Dennis and Origina. Anselm was willing to speak about God in far more positive terms than most of the previous philosophers. He seemed to think it possible to arrive at a fairly adequate idea of God by means of natural reason, which was precisely what had always troubled the Greeks about the Western theology. Once he had proved God's existence to his satisfaction, Anselm set out to demonstrate the doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity, which the Greeks had always insisted defied reason and conceptualization. In his treatise, Why God Became Man, he relies on logic and rational thought more than revelation. Few thinkers have made such a lasting contribution to Western Christianity as the 13th century philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas, who attempted a synthesis of Augustine and the Greek philosophy which had recently been made available in the West. The Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas was an attempt to integrate the new philosophy with the Western Christian tradition. Aquinas had been particularly impressed by Ibn Rushd's explication of Aristotle. Yet, unlike Anselm and Abelard, Aquinas did not believe that such mysteries as the Trinity could be proved by reason. 
He agreed with Dennis that God's real nature was inaccessible to the human mind. Aquinas' attempt to set his religious experience in the context of the new philosophy was necessary in order to articulate faith with other reality and not relegate it to an isolated sphere of its own. If God is not to become an indulgent endorsement of our own egotism, religious experience must be informed by an accurate assessment of its content. Aquinas defined God by returning to God's own definition of himself to Moses. I am what I am. Aristotle had said that God was necessary being. Aquinas accordingly linked the God of the philosophers with the God of the Bible by calling God he who is. Unfortunately, however, Aquinas gives the impression that God can be discussed in the same way as other philosophical ideas or natural phenomena by prefacing his discussion of God with a demonstration of God's existence from natural philosophy. Aquinas lists five proofs for God's existence that would become immensely important in the Catholic world and would also be used by Protestants. First, Aristotle's argument for a prime mover. Second, a similar proof which maintains that there cannot be an infinite series of causes. There must have been a beginning. Third, the argument from contingency propounded by Ibn Sina, which demands the existence of a necessary being. Fourth, Aristotle's argument from the philosophy that the hierarchy of excellence in the world implies a perfection that is the best of all. Fifth, the argument from design, which maintains that the order and purpose that we see in the universe cannot simply be the result of chance. These proofs do not hold water today. Even from a religious point of view, they're rather dubious, since, with the possible exception of the argument from design, each proof tacitly implies that God is simply another being, the highest being of all. This is reductive and can make this super-being an idol created in our own image. It's probably not inaccurate to suggest that many people in the West regard God as a being in this way. Aquinas's Franciscan contemporary, Bonaventure, who died in 1274, had much the same vision. He also tried to articulate philosophy with religious experience to the mutual enrichment of both spheres. Bonaventure also applied Anselm's ontological proof for the existence of God to his discussion of Francis of Assisi, whose life he saw as an epiphany. The very fact that we could form such a concept as the best proved that it must exist in the supreme perfection of God. If we entered into ourselves, as Plato and Augustine had both advised, we would find God's image reflected in our own inner world. This introspection was essential. The Christian must first descend into the depths of his own self, where he would find a vision of God that transcended our limited human notions. Both Bonaventure and Aquinas had seen the religious experience as primary. They had been faithful to the tradition of falsifer, since philosophers had often been mystics who were acutely conscious of the limitations of the intellect. They had evolved rational proofs of God's existence to articulate their religious faith with their scientific studies and to link it with other, more ordinary experiences. 
They didn't personally doubt God's existence, and many were well aware of the limitations of their achievement. These proofs were not designed to convince unbelievers, since there were as yet no atheists in our modern sense. This natural theology, therefore, was not a prelude to religious experience, but an accompaniment. The philosophers didn't believe that you had to convince yourself of God's existence rationally before you could have a mystical experience. If anything, it was the other way around. In the Jewish, Muslim, and Greek Orthodox worlds, the God of the philosophers was rapidly being overtaken by the God of the mystics. Judaism, Christianity, and, to a lesser extent, Islam, have all developed the idea of a personal God, so we tend to think that this ideal represents religion at its best. The personal God has helped monotheists to value the sacred and inalienable rights of the individual, and to cultivate an appreciation of human personality. The Judeo-Christian tradition has thus helped the West to acquire the liberal humanism it values so highly. These values were originally enshrined in a personal God who does everything that a human being does. He loves, judges, punishes, sees, hears, creates, and destroys, as we do. Yahweh began as a highly personalized deity with passionate human likes and dislikes. Later, he became a symbol of transcendence, whose thoughts were not our thoughts, and whose ways soared above our own as the heavens tower over the earth. It is possible to read the Jewish scriptures as the story of the refinement and, later, of the abandonment of the tribal and personalized Yahweh. Christianity tried to qualify the cult of God incarnate by introducing the doctrine of the transpersonal trinity. Muslims very soon had problems with those passages in the Quran which implied that God sees, hears, and judges like human beings. All three of the monotheistic religions developed a mystical tradition, which made their god transcend the personal category. Only a few people are capable of true mysticism, but in all three faiths, with the exception of Western Christianity, it was the god experienced by the mystics which eventually became normative among the faithful, until relatively recently. Historical monotheism was not originally mystical. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all essentially active faiths, devoted to ensuring that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The central motif of these prophetic religions is a personal meeting between God and humanity. This God is experienced as an imperative to action. He calls us to himself, gives us the choice of rejecting or accepting his love and concern. This God relates to human beings by means of a dialogue. He utters a word, which becomes the chief focus of devotion, and which has to be painfully incarnated in the flawed and tragic conditions of earthly life. In Christianity, the most personalized of the three, the relationship with God is characterized by love. But the point of love is that the ego has, in some sense, to be annihilated. In either dialogue or love, egotism is a perpetual possibility. Language itself can be a limiting faculty since it embeds us in the concepts of our mundane experience. The prophets had declared war on mythology. Their God was active in history 
rather than in the primordial, sacred time of myth. When monotheists turned to mysticism, however, mythology reasserted itself as the chief vehicle of religious experience. Mystical religion is more immediate and tends to be more help in time of trouble than a predominantly cerebral faith. The disciplines of mysticism help the adept to return to the one, the primordial beginning, and to cultivate a constant sense of presence. Yet the early Jewish mysticism that developed during the second and third centuries seemed to emphasize the gulf between God and man. Jews imagined God as a mighty king who could only be approached in a perilous journey through the seven heavens. The mystics used sonorous, grandiloquent language. The rabbis hated this spirituality. Yet, this throne mysticism, as it was called, must have fulfilled an important need, since it continued to flourish alongside the great rabbinic academies until it was finally incorporated into Kabbalah, the new Jewish mysticism, during the 12th and 13th centuries. The classic texts of throne mysticism suggest that the mystics felt a strong affinity with the rabbinic tradition, however. They revealed a new extremity in the Jewish spirit as they blazed a new trail to God on behalf of their people. The mystic had to journey to the throne of God through the mythological realm of the seven heavens. Yet this was only an imaginary flight. It was never taken literally, but was always seen as a symbolic ascent through the mysterious regions of the mind. Today, we know that the unconscious is a teeming mass of imagery that surfaces in dreams, in hallucinations, and in aberrant psychic or neurological conditions. Jewish mystics didn't really imagine that they were flying through the sky or entering God's palace, but were marshalling the religious images that filled their minds in a controlled and ordered way. This demanded great skill and a certain disposition and training. It required the same kind of concentration as the disciplines of Zen or yoga, which also helped the adept to find his way through the psyche. Although the earliest texts of this throne mysticism date only to the second or third centuries, this kind of contemplation was probably older. Thus, in the first century, St. Paul refers to a friend who'd been caught up to the third heaven. The visions are not ends in themselves, but means to an ineffable religious experience that exceeds normal concepts. They will be conditioned by the particular religious tradition of the mystic. A Jewish visionary will see visions of the seven heavens. Christians visualize the Virgin Mary. It's a mistake for the visionary to see these mental apparitions as anything more than symbols of transcendence. Since hallucination is often a pathological state, considerable skill and mental balance is required to handle and interpret the symbols that emerge during the course of concentrated meditation and inner reflection. Throne mysticism was not unique. The Prophet Muhammad is said to have had a very similar experience when he made his night journey from Arabia to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He'd been transported, he said, in sleep by Gabriel on a celestial horse. On arrival, he was greeted by Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and a crowd of other prophets who confirmed Muhammad in his own prophetic mission. Then, Gabriel and Muhammad began their perilous ascent up a ladder 
through the seven heavens, each of which was presided over by a prophet. Finally, Muhammad reached the divine sphere. The early sources reverently keep silent about the final vision. In the Quran, Muhammad claims that he did not see God himself, but only symbols that pointed to the divine reality. There's no way in which the vision of God can appeal to the normal experiences of thought or language. The ascent to heaven is a symbol of the furthest reach of the human spirit, which marks the threshold of ultimate meaning. The symbol of an ascent indicates that worldly perceptions have been left far behind. The experience of God that is finally attained is utterly indescribable. The Jewish mystics describe anything but God. They tell us about his cloak, his palace, his heavenly court, and the veil that shields him, which represents the eternal archetype. Muslims who speculated about Muhammad's flight to heaven stress the paradoxical nature of his final vision of God. He both saw and did not see the divine presence. Once the mystic has worked through the realm of imagery, he reaches the point where neither concepts nor imagination can take him any further. This was no naturalistic vision of a personalized God. Mystics had not, so to speak, heard his voice. It seemed that they had, in some mysterious way, touched the reality that lay beyond these things. However we choose to interpret it, people all over the world and in all phases of history have had this type of contemplative experience. Monotheists have called the climatic insight a vision of God. Buddhists would call it an intimation of nirvana. The point is that this is something that human beings who have a certain spiritual talent have always wanted to do. The mystical experience of God has certain characteristics that are common to all faiths. It is a subjective experience that involves an interior journey. It is undertaken through the image-making part of the mind, often called the imagination, rather than through the more cerebral, logical faculty. Finally, it's something that the mystic creates deliberately. Certain physical or mental exercises yield the final vision. It doesn't always come upon them unawares. Augustine seems to have imagined that privileged human beings were sometimes able to see God in this life. He cited Moses and St. Paul as examples. But Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604 and who was an acknowledged master of the spiritual life, disagreed. He used the metaphors of cloud, fog or darkness to suggest the obscurity of all human knowledge of the divine. His God remained hidden from human beings in an impenetrable darkness. Gregory remained an important spiritual guide until the 12th century. Clearly, the West continued to find God something of a strain. In the East, the Christian experience of God was characterized by light rather than darkness. The Greeks evolved a different form of mysticism, also found worldwide. This rested on the silent experience described by Dennis the Areopagite. The aim of the contemplative was to go beyond ideas and images, since these could only be a distraction. Then he would acquire a certain sense of presence that was indefinable 
and certainly transcended all human experiences of a relationship with another person. Since words, ideas, and images can only tie us down in the mundane world, the mind must be deliberately spilled by the techniques of concentration, so that it could cultivate a waiting silence. Only then could it hope to apprehend a reality that transcended anything that it could conceive. Unlike their Western brethren, the Greeks didn't think that strain, dryness, and desolation were an inescapable prelude to the experience of God. Not everybody could achieve these higher states, however, but other Christians could glimpse something of this mystical experience in the icons. In the West, religious art was becoming predominantly representational. In Byzantium, however, the icon was an attempt to portray the ineffable mystical experience in a visual form to inspire the non-mystics. Icons were a focus of contemplation, which provided the faithful with a sort of window on the divine world. In his Greater Apology for the Holy Images, the monk Nicephorus claimed that icons were expressive of the silence of God, exhibiting in themselves the ineffability of a mystery that transcends being. Instead of instructing the faithful in the dogmas of the church like Western art, the Greek icons held the faithful in a sense of mystery. When describing the effect of these religious paintings, Nicephorus could only compare it to the effect of music, the most ineffable of the arts, and possibly the most direct. In 9th century Byzantium, Greek Christians found that God was better expressed in a work of art than in rationalistic discourse. They were evolving a portrait of God that depended upon the imaginative experience of Christians. This was definitively expressed by Simeon, abbot of the small monastery of St. Macrus in Constantinople and who died in 1022. He became known as the New Theologian. This new type of theology made no attempt to define God. This, Simeon insisted, would be presumptuous. Instead of arguing rationally about God's nature, the new theology relied on direct, personal religious experience. It was impossible to know God in conceptual terms, as though he were just another being about which we could form ideas. God was a mystery. A true Christian was one who had a conscious experience of the God who had revealed himself in the transfigured humanity of Christ. For Simeon, therefore, God was both known and unknown, near and far. Instead of attempting the impossible task of describing ineffable matters by words alone, he urged his monks to concentrate on what could be experienced as a transfiguring reality in their own souls. God was not an external, objective fact, but an essentially subjective and personal enlightenment. It was useless to define the God who effected this transformation, since he was beyond speech and description. Yet, as an experience that fulfilled and transfigured humanity without violating its integrity, God was an incontrovertible reality. The Greeks had developed ideas about God, such as the Trinity and the Incarnation, that separated them from other monotheists. Yet the actual experience of their mystics 
had much in common with those of Muslims and Jews. Even though the Prophet Muhammad had been primarily concerned with the establishment of a just society, he and some of his closest companions had been mystically inclined, and the Muslims had quickly developed their own distinctive mystical tradition. During the 8th and 9th centuries, an ascetical form of Islam had developed alongside the other sects. The ascetics attempted to return to the simpler life of the first Muslims in Medina, dressing in the coarse garments made of wool, in Arabic, huf, that were supposed to have been favoured by the Prophet. Consequently, they were known as Sufis. Social justice remained crucial to their piety. At first, Sufis had much in common with the other sects. The Muslim clerics, the ulema, were beginning to distinguish Islam sharply from other religions, seeing it as the one true faith. But Sufis, by and large, remained true to the Quranic vision of the unity of all rightly guided religion. Jesus, for example, was revered by many Sufis as the prophet of the interior life. Some even amended the Shahada, the profession of faith, to say, there is no God but Allah, and Jesus is his messenger, which was technically correct, but intentionally provocative. The love of God became the hallmark of Sufism. Sufis may well have been influenced by the Christian ascetics of the Near East, but Muhammad remained the crucial influence. They hoped to have an experience of God that was similar to that of Muhammad when he had received his revelations. Naturally, they were also inspired by his mystical ascent to heaven, which became the paradigm of their own experience of God. They also evolved the techniques and disciplines that have helped mystics all over the world to achieve an alternative state of consciousness. Sufis added the practices of fasting, night vigils, and chanting the divine names as a mantra to the basic requirements of Muslim law. The effect of these practices sometimes resulted in behavior which seemed bizarre and unrestrained. Hussein ibn Mansur, who's usually known as Al-Halaj, the wool carder, threw all caution to the winds and became a martyr for his mystical faith. Roaming Iraq, preaching the overthrow of the caliphate and the establishment of a new social order, he was imprisoned by the authorities and crucified like his hero, Jesus. In his ecstasy, Al-Halaj had cried aloud, I am the truth. Jesus had made the same claim when he had said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Al-Halaj had been expressing his sense of a union with God that was so close that it felt like identity. Al-Halaj refused to recant when he was accused of blasphemy and died a saintly death. The story of Al-Halaj shows the deep antagonism that can exist between the mystic and the religious establishment who have different notions of God and revelation. For the mystic, the revelation is an event that happens within his own soul, while for more conventional people, it is an event that is firmly fixed in the past. During the 11th century, Muslim philosophers such as Ibn Sina and Al-Ghazali himself had found that objective accounts of God were unsatisfactory and had turned toward mysticism. Al-Ghazali had made Sufism acceptable to the establishment, 
and had shown that it was the most authentic form of Muslim spirituality. During the 12th century, the Iranian philosopher Yahya Sohrawadi and the Spanish-born Muiddin ibn al-Arabi linked Islamic falsafa indissolubly with mysticism and made the god experienced by the Sufis normative in many parts of the Islamic empire. Like al-Halaj, however, Sohrawadi was put to death by the ulema in Aleppo in 1191 for reasons that remain obscure. He was as intellectually rigorous as al-Farabi, but he also insisted on the importance of intuition in the approach to truth. As the Quran had taught, all truth came from God and should be sought wherever it could be found. It could be found in paganism and Zoroastrianism, as well as in the monotheistic tradition. Unlike dogmatic religions, which lends itself to sectarian disputes, mysticism often claims that there are as many roads to God as people. Sufism in particular would evolve an outstanding appreciation of the faith of others. Sukhrawadi is often called the Sheikh al-Ishraq, or the master of illumination. Like the Greeks, he experienced God in terms of light. As its name implies, the core of Ishraqi philosophy was the symbol of light, which was seen as the perfect synonym for God. Totally self-evident, light was perceived by everybody as the element that made life possible. It was all-pervasive. Whatever luminosity belonged to material bodies came directly from light, a source outside themselves. In Sukhrawadi's emanationist cosmology, the light of lights corresponded to the necessary being of the Phalasups, which was utterly simple. It generated a succession of lesser lights in a descending hierarchy. Each light, recognizing its dependency upon the light of lights, developed a shadow self that was the source of a material realm. This was a metaphor of the human predicament. There was a similar combination of light and darkness within each one of us. The light, or soul, was conferred upon the embryo by the Holy Spirit. The soul longs to be united with the higher world of light, and, if it is properly instructed, can even catch a glimpse of this here below. The process of awakening, or illumination, was clearly very different from the wrenching, violent inspiration of prophecy. Mysticism was introducing a karma spirituality into the religions of God. Instead of a collision with a reality without, illumination would come from within the mystic himself. There was no imparting of fact. Instead, the exercise of the human imagination would enable people to return to God by introducing them to the world of pure images. Sukhrawadi insisted that the visions of mystics and the symbols of scripture, such as heaven, hell, and the last judgment, were as real as the phenomena we experience in this world, but not in the same way. They could not be empirically proven, but could only be discerned by the trained imaginative faculty, which enabled visionaries to see the spiritual dimension of earthly phenomena. This experience was nonsensical to anybody who hadn't had the requisite training. The path to God, therefore, 
did not lie solely through reason, as the Felisovs had thought, but through the creative imagination, the realm of the mystics. Sukhrawadi was attempting an imaginative explanation of those symbols that have had a crucial influence on human life, even though the realities to which they refer remain elusive. Even more influential than Sukhrawadi was his younger contemporary, Mu'id ad-Din ibn al-Arabi, whose life we can, perhaps, see as a symbol of the parting of the ways between East and West. His father was a friend of Ibn Rushd, who was very impressed by the piety of the young boy. During a severe illness, Ibn al-Arabi was converted to Sufism, however, and at the age of 30, he left Europe for the Middle East. He made the Hajj to Mecca and spent two years praying and meditating at the Kaaba. Frequently called Sheikh al-Akbar, the Great Master, he profoundly affected the Muslim conception of God. But his thought did not influence the West, which imagined that Islamic philosophy had ended with Ibn Rushd. Western Christendom would embrace Ibn Rushd's Aristotelian God, while most of Islamdom opted, until relatively recently, for the imaginative God of the mystics. In 1201, while making the circumambulations around the Kaaba, Ibn al-Arabi had a vision which had a profound and lasting effect upon him. He had seen a young girl named Nizam, surrounded by a heavenly aura, and he realized that she was an incarnation of Sophia, the divine wisdom. This epiphany made him realize that it would be impossible for us to love God if we relied only on the rational arguments of philosophy. Falsifer emphasized the utter transcendence of Allah and reminded us that nothing could resemble him. How could we love such an alien being? Yet we can love the God we see in his creatures. We cannot see God himself, but we can see him as he has chosen to reveal himself in such creatures as Nizam, who inspire love in our hearts. Ibn al-Arabi was also convinced that the imagination was a God-given faculty. When a mystic created an epiphany for himself, he was bringing to birth here below a reality that existed more perfectly in the realm of archetypes. When we saw the divine in other people, we were making an imaginative effort to uncover the true reality. Thus, as seemed to be the way of Sufism, what started as a highly personalized spirituality, centering on a human being, led Ibn al-Arabi to a transpersonal conception of God. Ibn al-Arabi did not believe that the God he knew had an objective existence. Even though he was a skilled metaphysician, he did not believe that God's existence could be proved by logic. Falsifer had been inspired by the encounter with Greek science and metaphysics, but was not slavishly dependent upon Hellenism. In their Middle Eastern colonies, the Greeks had tended to follow a standard curriculum in their education, and this had led to a degree of unity and coherence. However, however, the Felisovs did not observe this curriculum, but read the texts as they became available in Arabic. This inevitably opened up new perspectives. Besides their own distinctively Islamic and Arab insights, their thinking was also affected by Persian, Indian, and Gnostic influence. 
Thus, Yaqub ibn Ishaq al-Kindi, who died in about 870, was the first Muslim to apply the rational method to the Quran. He disagreed with Aristotle on several major issues. He could see philosophy only as the handmaid of revelation. Most later philosophers would not share this perspective. Al-Kindi was also anxious to seek out truth in other religious traditions, however. Truth was one, and it was the task of the philosophers to search for it in whatever cultural or linguistic garments it had assumed. Here, Al-Kindi was in line with the Quran, but he went further since he also turned to the Greek philosophies. He used Aristotle's arguments for the existence of a prime mover. In a rational world, he argued, everything had a cause. There must, therefore, be an unmoved mover to start the ball rolling, as it were. This first principle was being itself, unchangeable, perfect, and indestructible. But Al-Kindi departed from Aristotle by adhering to the Quranic doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Action can be defined as the bringing of something out of nothing. This, Al-Kindi maintained, was God's prerogative. Falsifer came to reject creation ex nihilo, so Al-Kindi cannot really be described as a true philosoph. But he was a pioneer in the Islamic attempt to harmonize religious truth with systematic metaphysics. His successors were more radical. Thus, Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria Arazi, who died in about 930, has been described as the greatest nonconformist in... Oops, I let it go back around to one. Well, there's Karen talking about God. Fun stuff. That was... Uh Three. Let's go disc four. Thanks for listening to Mutiny Radio. FM and SF. Give us money, please. At Mutiny Radio on Venmo. The Sufi practices, such as the recitation of the divine names as a mantra to induce ecstasy, spread throughout the Islamic world. The Sufi disciplines of concentration, with their carefully prescribed techniques of breathing and posture, helped people to experience a sense of transcendent presence within. Not everybody was capable of the higher mystical states, but these spiritual exercises did help people to abandon simplistic and anthropomorphic notions of God and to experience God as a presence within the self. The most famous of the Sufi orders was the Malawiya, whose members are known in the West as the Whirling Dervishes. Their stately and dignified dance was a method of concentration. As he spun around and around, the Sufi felt the boundaries of selfhood dissolve. The founder of the order, who died in 1273, was Jalal al-Din Rumi, known to his disciples as Maulana, our master. Like other Sufis, Rumi saw the universe as a theophany of God's myriad names. Some of these revealed God's wrath or severity, while others experienced qualities of mercy. By this time, tragedy had also helped the Jews of Europe to form a new conception of God. The crusading anti-Semitism of the West 
was making life intolerable for the Jewish communities, and many wanted a more immediate, personal God than the remote deity experienced by the throne mystics. During the 9th century, the Kolonimos family had emigrated from southern Italy to Germany and had brought some mystical literature with them. By the 12th century, persecution had introduced a new pessimism into Ashkenazic piety, and this was expressed in the writings of three members of the Kolonimos clan. They were not systematic thinkers, and their work shows that they had borrowed their ideas from a number of sources that might seem incompatible. They'd been greatly impressed by the dry phalus of Sadia ibn Joseph and by such Christian mystics as Francis of Assisi. From this strange amalgam of sources, they managed to create a spirituality which remained important to the Jews of France and Germany until the 17th century. These German pietists preached a renunciation that resembled Christian asceticism and was quite alien to the rabbinic tradition which disapproved of asceticism. A Jew, they said, would only see the Shekinah in the next world if he turned his back on pleasure. Jews should cultivate an apathia, an indifference like God's, remaining impervious to scorn and insults. But God could be addressed as friend. No throne mystic would have dreamt of calling God thou. This familiarity crept into the liturgy, depicting a God who was imminent and intimately present at the same time as he was transcendent. The pietists qualified this imminence by showing that nobody could approach God himself, but only God as he manifested himself to mankind in his glory or in the great radiance called Shekinah. The pietists were not worried by the apparent inconsistency. They concentrated on practical matters rather than theological niceties, teaching their fellow Jews methods of concentration and gestures that would enhance their sense of God's presence. The situation of the Jews in the Islamic Empire, where there was no anti-Semitic persecution, was far happier, and they had no need of this Ashkenazic pietism. They were evolving a new type of Judaism, however, as a response to Muslim developments. Just as the Jewish philosophers had attempted to explain the God of the Bible philosophically, other Jews tried to give their God a more mystical, symbolic interpretation, like the Sufis. At first, these mystics constituted only a tiny minority. Theirs was an esoteric discipline, handed on from master to disciple. They called it Kabbalah, or inherited tradition. Eventually, however, the god of Kabbalah would appeal to the majority and take hold of the Jewish imagination in a way that the god of the philosophers never did. The god of the mystics was able to touch those fears and anxieties that lie deeper than the rational. Where the throne mystics had been content to gaze upon the glory of God from without and from afar, the Kabbalists attempted to penetrate the inner life of God and the human consciousness. Instead of speculating rationally... We'll gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyratio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to so small business advice. 
LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. I'll, it's nap time. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. Comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh, a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. 2781 21st Street. 
Happy Hour, Mutiny Radio, .fm, here in .sf. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed vests right here at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. I knew Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in a drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking. L-S-D. Fap. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. Radio Festival Ahoy! Ah, very good! Ah, very good! 
legless Joe. I'm surprised you can see from the crow's nest with no legs. It's to get ready. Crew, the festival is upon us. Ooh. Scurvy Steve, how many comics? Over a hundred comics. You're looking good, Scurvy Steve. Glad the scurvy hasn't taken you. Aye, aye, Captain. You, no liver Mary, how many venues? We've got nine venues, sir. And you, boy, what's your name? Very good. And finally, Eleven Fingers Sally. What about the tickets? You can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir. Check out www.mutinyradio.fm. What is that? I don't know what a website is. I'm a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> but quick to the festival. All sails ahead. Arr. Pirate Arr. noises. guys like Let's start off with a number of our new albums. A number entitled Paranoid. Let Black Plastic Mutiny Radio FM. Finish with my woman, cause she couldn't help me with my mind. 
Same where 